I'm so delighted to be here uh, today with you, and thank you, Steve, for this kind invitation. Uh, I'm always happy to hang out with Crossroads people. Uh, I'm always encouraged to be around you. Uh, four years ago, I was on a seminary trip to Israel, and we were lumped in with a group from Crossroads, and uh, Steve was on that trip, and it was led by Rod and Libby, and um, we just had an absolute blast. It was, it was a, a wonderful time for me. Uh, that was a time of uh, some transition in life of my family, and so um, I found it tremendously restorative and renewing. I would say it was a transformative experience, but the people I live with would, would say, well, we're kind of waiting for that transformation to take place, actually. So I don't want to say it was transformative, but it was really good. Uh, I'm always a little bit fearful of hanging out with Crossroads people a bit too much and being with you all that often uh, because, because of my limited interaction with you, I just think the world of you. And I think Crossroads people are the ones in Grand Rapids. This is the one church that's doing it. And other churches are not doing it like Crossroads is. And I don't want to have that illusion shattered. Okay, so this is a bit of a threat. I kind of feel like if I went to church, I'd come here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I actually do stand before you with a little bit of uh, hesitation this morning. Um, because when I was asked to speak, I was told that I was free to choose whatever I wanted to talk about. And it didn't take me long to decide or just to realize what I needed to talk about. Um, I've been living with the, Mar uh, the Gospel of Mark for the last six years now, and I'm trying to complete a project on Mark's Gospel. And the study of Mark for me has been absolutely thrilling. It's been mind-blowing. Mark is an amazing uh, piece of literature, but it's also very unsettling. It's very threatening. The realities that it speaks about um, are terrifying if you have a very comfortable life the way that I do. I can't tell you how many times I've just pushed my chair away from the desk and just thought, this is, Jesus is talking about a reality that touches almost no points of my life. This is terrifying. The Gospel of Mark is not the Gospel story that many Christian audiences expect to hear. It's actually a very confrontational Gospel. And it's not the world that Mark is confronting, it is the church. And that's why I'm a bit hesitant. I would rather have brought something very encouraging, very uplifting, talked about something else, but I want to do justice to the voice of God as we hear it in Mark's gospel, and I need to represent its confrontational tone. And I'm not doing that because I know things about crossroads. It's not the case that Steve has told me you know, there's some people in our church that really need to get their act together. If you would just come and just point some stuff out. It's not, that's not going on here. I think the world of you. Steve is disappointed in some No, I'm just kidding. He hasn't told that. <laughs> I think the world of all of you. But my aim this morning is to actually be faithful to Mark's message and leave it with you to determine how Mark maybe needs to move into this community and unsettle some things, to shake some things up, to make some of you uncomfortable, and to leave you with questions that you perhaps need to ask yourselves and reflect upon. Mark is unlike the other three Gospels. They each tell the story in a very distinct way. 
As you know, we have four Gospels, uh, and that is because Jesus is a very uh, richly textured person, and the kingdom is such a multifaceted reality that one singular angle on Jesus or one singular angle on the kingdom would not do either full justice. And each gospel writer, of course, has a unique voice. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the Gospel of John. John is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John's gospel sounds sweet notes of grace. I'm the bread of life, the living water, the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I will lose none of them. But Mark presents Jesus from a different perspective. It's not contradictory, but it's complementary. In Mark, Jesus is a prophet. He makes audiences uncomfortable. Quite often in Mark, Jesus is mistaken for John the Baptist, a wild man who challenged the establishment and upset the status quo. Some people thought that Jesus was Elijah, returned from the dead. Elijah, that troubler of Israel. This is just to say that Jesus' mode of ministry in Mark reminded people of confrontational prophets. Now, the fact that there are four God-inspired portraits that each have their distinctive elements, uh, these different portraits of Jesus, this reality should not surprise us because this is totally consistent with how God has always spoken to His people. God has always given to His people priests, and prophets, and they do not do the same job. Priests are called by God to bless the people. God bless the king. God bless the people. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and give you peace. You are a forgiven people. In Scripture, priests are how God says to his people, I love you. That is most definitely not what prophets do. Prophets walk into the royal courts, probably uninvited, and immediately everyone is on edge. The king is corrupt. The temple is a sham. It's rotten to the core. God is going to reduce it to a pile of rubble. The priests are a bunch of bloodsuckers. You think this building is where God lives? This building is not God's house. You have made it a den of robbers. You don't want to be around when prophets show up. Well, which is it? Does God love his people, Israel? Or are they a bunch of rotten hypocrites? That's perhaps not the best question. The better question is, why does God talk to his people this way? God's people always need to hear the priestly word, and they always need to hear the prophetic word. God wants us to know that we're loved And God does not ever want us to be complacent. We are loved by God in Jesus. And at the same time, we can never stop being vigilant, uncomfortable, self-critical, always exposing ourselves to the searching, transforming, devastating, and renewing Word of God. And that's where Mark's gospel comes in. I gave this sermon the title, Why You Need to Be Quiet About Jesus. I wanted to call it why you need to shut up about Jesus. But I'm not as rude as Mark is, and I'm not nearly as rude as Jesus is in Mark. 
One of the interesting features in Mark's gospel is that Jesus keeps telling everyone to be quiet about him. He does this many times, but I'll just mention a few. In Mark 1, Jesus casts out a demon who identifies him rightly as the Holy One of God. And Jesus commands the demon, be quiet. Just a bit later, Mark states that Jesus was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. After healing a leper, Jesus sternly warned him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But the man didn't listen, which led to large crowds gathering around Jesus. We might read that as a positive development, but in Mark, large crowds are not a good thing. They become obstacles to Jesus doing his work. In Mark 3, after healing many, Jesus earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. When he healed Jairus' daughter, Jesus gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And there were many other instances of this. Now why is that? Why is Jesus so against evangelism? I grew up in church singing that song, Be a Missionary Every Day. Jesus is saying, don't anybody be missionaries on any day. What is the deal, Jesus? Jesus is a pretty poor inspirer of our evangelist, evangelistic efforts. In Mark, this is Jesus' abrupt and confrontational word to the church. He is speaking to complacent churches, churches with great resources, churches that are comfortable. I don't want any of you talking about me because you don't know me. You don't understand me. You haven't been listening. You haven't been hearing. And you have not been moving toward understanding. So shut your mouths because if you talk about me, you're going to misrepresent me. The way Mark does this is through the character of the Gospels, sorry, through the character of the disciples, who basically function as a singular character in Mark. Mark is inviting church audiences, us, to put ourselves in the place of the disciples as they listen to the narrative. We are people who do not faithfully grasp what Jesus is all about. And because there is a massive risk that we will misrepresent Jesus to others when we talk about him, Jesus wants us to be silent. I want to show you just a bit of how this works out in Mark's gospel, and I want to focus this morning on the parable of the sower and the soils in Mark 4, verses 1 to 20. First, Jesus tells the parable. He began to teach them by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold. That's a tidy English translation. Those are just two Greek imperative verbs. Listen. Look. Sharpen your senses. Pay attention. The sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. And it yielded no crop. 
Other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus begins the parable by exhorting you to listen and to look. And then he closes it by a similar exhortation to sharpen your senses. If you're hearing, make sure that you are hearing. When Jesus was alone with his disciples, he told them a little bit more of what he was up to. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven, or they might repent and be forgiven. Pretty interesting. Kind of shocking. Jesus is drawing a sharp distinction between insiders and outsiders. You disciples, you church, you are my people. You are the ones who are the insiders. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. You are the people that get me. You are the kingdom. Those people out there, outsiders, they don't get me. They're going to be hearing everything in parables, mystifying sayings, riddles. And I'm speaking this way so that they won't understand what the kingdom of God is all about, and they won't understand what I'm all about, because if they did, the worst thing would happen. They might understand and repent and be forgiven. And we want to prevent that from happening. What in the world is going on here? This is evidence that Mark did not go to tidy gospel writing class. This is not the gospel that you would have written or that I would have written. We have Jesus, the anti-evangelist, and now we have the, Jesus who's the preacher of confusion so that people would absolutely not understand because he certainly doesn't want them repenting and being forgiven. What in the world is going on here? Well, if you are a little bit confused at this point, let's wrap it up there. And uh, <laughs> Mark has you right where he wants you. What's happening here is that Mark is setting us up. We are Mark's target. He's going after the assumption that lurks in the heart of God's people. We are God's people. We're the ones who get God. We get Jesus. Those people out there, they don't get God like we do. They're outside the kingdom of God. I drove to church this morning and saw people out jogging, walking along the river, did my favorite Christian activity and judgment on them. I know you love it. It feels so good. I get to judge other people. I'm going to church. I'm an insider. I'm a follower of Jesus. Those people out there, they're the problem. I'm here to be equipped because I'm the solution to the problem. Mark is exposing the corrupted posture that many Christians have about themselves toward the world. We have the kingdom. We have God. 
we enjoy God's blessings. And when we feel led or when we feel moved, we can dispense God to other people. We can dispense Jesus to other people. But that keeps us in a place of power and control. We are the solution. The world is the problem. Just after Jesus tells this parable, going ahead a paragraph or two, in Mark 4, verses 23 to 25, Jesus says this, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Of course, he said that. He keeps saying that. Listen up. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. Jesus is not uh, the Jesus you think he is in Mark, and Mark is actually a terrible gospel writer. He just keeps repeating himself because he knows that we don't listen. Take care what you listen to. In Greek, that's see what you hear. So if you have ears to hear, hear. Now, see what you hear. It's just crazy. Sharpen your senses, is what Jesus is saying to the church. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and, the, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what, he ha- even what he has shall be taken away. Jesus is saying to his audience there and to us, if you have a little bit of understanding of the kingdom and you seek to grow in your understanding, even more insight into the kingdom and to Jesus' identity will be given to you. But if you grow complacent, if you're not paying attention to the particulars of the kingdom, and the precise nature of who Jesus is, even your little bit of understanding will be taken away. You will grow more and more confused. Insiders to the kingdom will grow in their insight. Outsiders to the kingdom will grow in their confusion. These parables that Jesus tells in Mark 4 cannot be understood on their own. They can't just be lifted out and uh, applied generally. The parables that Mark tells, uh, that Jesus tells, that Mark relays in Mark 4 are indicators as to what is going to happen in the rest of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 4 is kind of a table of contents to what you're going to read if you read Mark's gospel, and I commend it to you. You ought to. Something very interesting takes place in the rest of Mark, especially in chapters 4 to 8. Mark introduces us to a series of obvious outsiders. People that we would hear the description of and say, oh, they're so far, so far outside the kingdom. Pagans, demon-possessed people, unclean people, Gentiles, foreign women. Shockingly, these characters rightly perceive Jesus. They see and they hear him. And they respond in a faithful way. Just to go through this quickly, the demon-possessed man in Mark 5 a total outsider. Mark develops how far outside uh, he is over five verses of description. It's, he's radioactively unclean and infinitely outside the kingdom of God. But the demon-possessed man sees Jesus and runs up to him and falls down at his feet. Jairus, the synagogue official, sees Jesus and comes to him and falls down before him. The woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, biblically unclean, hears about Jesus and secretly touches him so that she's cleansed. When Jesus confronts her, she falls down before him and confesses what she has done to Jesus. And the hero of Mark 4 to 8, the Syrophoenician woman, heard about Jesus 
falls down at his feet. And after Jesus speaks, the rudest word he can conjure in the Gospel of Mark, calling her a dog, she responds with keen kingdom insight, showing that she gets Jesus. And Jesus commends her, sending her away, telling her that her daughter is freed from the demon that possessed her. As Mark progresses, outsiders get Jesus. Outsiders get the kingdom. Meanwhile, the disciples grow increasingly confused about Jesus' identity. And even when Jesus speaks a plain word to them, warning them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, they ask each other why he's talking about bread. Are we supposed to be bread? Who was on bread detail? It is the disciples who are now hearing Jesus in mystifying sayings. What is Mark up to? Mark is targeting church audiences that have grown presumptuous and complacent. Churches that presume that they are insiders to God's program. We assume that we're the ones who are the kingdom. We assume that we are the ones who get Jesus. We are the ones who get God. But Mark turns the insider-outsider dynamic on its head, forcing us to ask ourselves the question that Jesus presses on the disciples in Mark 8, verses 17 and 18, after their continual failure and repeated confusion. Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Is it you, church, that is outside the kingdom? This is why I say that the church is Mark's target. As we consider Jesus' interpretation of the, the four soils, we need to ask ourselves as a church, as crossroads, what kind of soil are we as a community? To what extent do we really understand who Jesus is, what the kingdom is really like, and what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus? Let's take a look at these four soils and keep these questions in mind. Jesus talks about the first, he gives the interpretation, I should say, of the first soil in verse 13. He says, when these people hear the word, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that has been sown in them. Now, before I studied this passage, I had always imagined uh, that Jesus was describing a scenario here uh, in which someone is hearing a gospel presentation, the heart is being stirred, and right when, they're, right when they're about to receive Jesus, they get interrupted, or someone diverts their attention, and totally forget that, oh yeah, I was about, I was about to ask Jesus into my heart, I'm doing something else. Satan snatches away the word when someone forgets or someone neglects the reality that they were just hearing about the gospel. But that's not what Jesus is describing here. That's not what happens when Satan takes away the word. It's pretty obvious to all of us that Satan is the enemy of God's people, the enemy of God, the enemy of Jesus. But Mark, just as the other gospel writers do, presents Satan as opposing God's purposes in a very specific way. Satan is not opposed to Jesus being the Messiah. Satan is not opposed to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. No problem at all for Satan. In fact, Satan is okay with loads of people hearing about Jesus. Actually, in Mark, 
Satan wants loads of people to hear about Jesus, which is why Jesus is trying to prevent people from talking about him. Satan is opposed to something very particular. He is opposed to Jesus going to the cross. You see this in Jesus' conversation with Peter in Mark 8. And you are familiar with this. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ. Jesus follows that by strongly warning Peter not to tell anyone about him. Of course he does. That's what he keeps doing in Mark. But then Jesus explains what it means that he is the Christ, what kind of Messiah he's going to be. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Not in parables, not in metaphors, not in complicated sayings. Peter then took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. What are you talking about, Jesus? We did not sign up for this. We left everything to follow you because you were going to fulfill the hopes for our people. We want liberation from our Roman oppressors, those foreign occupiers that are polluting God's land, making our lives miserable. We signed up for a mission to Jerusalem where you put on a spectacular display as you drive out our enemies. We want to take back our nation, get rid of those compromised temple authorities, and finally experience God's blessings on our land as God intended for us. How in the world is going to Jerusalem to die going to accomplish any of that? You need to get on message, Jesus, is Peter's rebuke to Jesus. Jesus turned around and made sure everyone was listening. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. I've just delivered to you, Peter, the word, the message about a Messiah who goes to the cross, who accomplishes God's purposes by dying, and who brings into being the cross-shaped kingdom. And you, Peter, want a Christ without the cross. You want glory now. You want power now. You want prestige now. But I'm a Messiah who suffers now and brings glory later. You, Peter, are Satan. Your mind is captive to a human perspective. You do not have your mind oriented by God's perspective. In Mark, Satan takes away the word through the spread of a gospel message where the cross is diminished where the cross is overshadowed, where the formation of a cross-shaped community of co-sufferers something we're just not interested in. And here's the thing. What happens when that kind of satanically-oriented message gets out? It draws huge crowds. In Mark, the crowds are overwhelming. I have to admit, I always thought that that was a positive thing. Like, wow, Jesus draws huge crowds. If we were only committed to Jesus, we would draw huge crowds too, like he did. But the crowds, as a character in Mark, are an obstacle to Jesus doing his work. 
He can't do what he came to do because of the crowds. It's interesting. Mark 14, Judas comes upon Jesus with a crowd. It's the same word. When the gospel of a cross-directed Christ who brings in a cross-shaped kingdom and calls disciples to get on their crosses, when that gospel is preached, it does not draw crowds. It just might drive people away. By the time Jesus goes to his cross near the end of Mark, everyone, all of his disciples, have abandoned him. This is a massive challenge to an American ideology of success that has had devastating effects on the Christian church in this land. Many of our church communities are shaped by glory, by power, by excitement, by spectacle. We love leaders who impress us, and we long to be connected to communities that make us look good, improve our social status, grab our interests, fascinate us. We are less interested in becoming communities that are marked by and oriented by the cross, by sacrifice, by self-giving love, by suffering. This is why Jesus wants churches to shut their mouths and to sit and ponder the tough and penetrating question, do you prefer a Christ without the cross? Do we love the cross of Christ because it gets us in, it gets me saved, but I want nothing to do with it now that I'm in. Jesus tells disciples to pick up your cross and follow me. He never says, all right, boys, that's enough. And get off those babies now. Churches are places where the kingdom of God is present in power, where the mind-blowing realities of the age to come flood their communities and overwhelm them with God's love and God's renewing power, but only, only, when their identity is marked by the cross, only when their community dynamics are shaped by the cross, only when their imaginations, behaviors, attitudes, speech patterns, relational postures are determined by the cross. Jesus explains the second soil in verses 16 to 18. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Again, in Mark's gospel, this is the disciples. They start so well. Jesus calls them, and immediately they leave everything. They just drop their means of making a living and follow this person that just said, you, follow me. They start off well. And in Mark 6, Jesus sends them on mission where they preach the gospel and cast out demons. And things go so well. They're being fruitful early in the gospel. After that, they begin to devolve and things never turn around. Again, Mark probably failed gospel writing class. After that mission I just mentioned in Mark 6, the disciples return. They have success um, experiencing the power of the kingdom while on mission. But when they return, Mark makes a very interesting statement. They reported to Jesus all that they, 
had done and taught. At the beginning of their mission, Mark makes a, a fascinating statement. Everything that the disciples did led, the, led to the spread of Jesus' name. Their activity was for the fame of Jesus, and it spread so widely that even Herod heard about it. But when they return, all they can think of is themselves. They're pretty chuffed with what they've done. That's the beginning of the disciples unraveling. Just after that, Jesus told the disciples when they were out on the hillside uh, to provide food for 5,000 people. The first feeding was supposed to be done by the disciples, not Jesus. And they should have been able to do it uh, because they had just spent about 10 months drawing upon and witnessing the power of the kingdom in action. Jesus looks on the crowd with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus tells them to feed the crowd. Of course, the disciples respond sarcastically. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Send them away to fend for themselves. They respond to Jesus' word wrongly, and from there, the confusion only compounds. When Jesus, just after this, a second time, wanted them to provide food for a massive crowd, just after seeing Jesus' miraculous supply, the disciples were like, well, where are we going to get food out here? They're growing increasingly blind. And by the end of Mark, one disciple betrays Jesus. One disciple denies him. And they all abandon him. Jesus is inviting Crossroads to ask itself some tough questions. Why are you here? Are you deep soil so that the cross-shaped word can flourish? Or are you here because this is an exciting place to be? But if things get uncomfortable because of the word of the cross, do you intend to check out, find something more interesting, Are you keeping your options open? Jesus goes on to describe the third soil in verses 18 and 19. Others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of this age, not the world, the worries of the world, but the worries of this age, the ideologies up and running in our era, the ways of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now here again, I have to say, I always thought about this uh, to imagine somebody on the path, a faithful Jesus follower, following hard after God. But over time, other interests kind of arise, pursuing a career, pursuing money, just interested in something else. And a person is diverted from the path, pulled away by the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of riches. That is not what's happening here. Jesus is describing a situation in which people have heard the word of the cross and a community is formed like this around the cross. There's been a good start, but the worries of this age, the anxieties of this age, the illusions that creep in by being a resource-rich church, the desires for other things, other items becoming a priority other than being a cross-shaped community. These things do not draw us away from the Word. They enter in and choke the Word. 
so that the word which gave birth to this place becomes unfruitful and the word does not form a cross-shaped community. It forms a community that is simply not interested in embodying the life of the cross. Community has got bigger fish to fry, aiming for bigger things, big things to do for God. No time for that anymore. The word of the cross is the life of the church. You know this if you're a baptized Christian. You do something very bizarre if you have become a Christian. You get dunked in water to identify yourself with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And you are raised out of the water to identify with his resurrection. That is your act of saying publicly, old things are gone. They're dead. My rights are gone. My wealth is gone. My possessions I hold loosely. Your life is now determined by kingdom priorities. And you, as a community of baptized people, are fully associated with the death of Christ so that you may share in his resurrection when he comes in glory. But other things begin to creep in. Other priorities, other pursuits, desires for prominence, for prestige, for access to power, big dreams, to make a big mark, impact, change the world, transform. We use all this kind of language. Think of what we could do. Think of who we could become. The illusions that choke out the word of the cross are never obvious. They will be subtle, and they will arise within our own hearts, and we will say them in Bible language, and we will say them in Christian terms, and they will sound very promising. You need to ask yourselves, is the word of the cross flourishing here? Or are there petty squabbles like the disciples were wrapped up in, determining who was most prominent, who was the greatest? Do you want to be involved here at Crossroads, but only if you get noticed? Are you content with persistent, difficult ministry that is thankless, that doesn't earn accolades? Is the corporate priority, the corporate identity here at Crossroads, to be a community thoroughly oriented by the cross, no matter what we might think we're missing out on? Jesus speaks about the fourth soil in verse 20. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Exponential growth. What's crazy in Mark's gospel is that this is not the disciples. Mark completely flips the script. All of the obvious outsiders in Mark see and hear Jesus. They perceive what he's all about. But the disciples reveal that they are the real outsiders. They are the ones who fail to see and hear and perceive Jesus. In Mark, the disciples are the blind men in need of having their sight restored. The disciples are the deaf man. Jesus gives him hearing and then restores his ability to speak. Mark portrays the disciples in this way in order to deliver the message to the church. Do you imagine that you possess God? Do you imagine that you have control of the kingdom? Dispense him 
and you can dispense kingdom realities as you see fit. Jesus says to the church, you are the ones in need. You can be a resource-rich church and still be stuck in poverty. Mark speaks a prophetic word to the church, asking if you are in need of understanding. Are you the ones wrapped up in quest for power, prominence, and prestige? Are you ashamed of Jesus' words about the cross? Is it you that needs to be quiet about Jesus until you understand what he's all about? In the Gospel of Mark, there are two practices that distinguish a church that is rich soil. There are really only two things that Jesus wants disciples to be doing in Mark, and they're a bit surprising. I think if an American Christian were to write the gospel, we might hear, say, God wants you to do big things. God wants you to aim high. Accomplish a lot for God. Do it for God. This is kind of how we talk, challenge each other to achieve. Go for it. Do something big for God. Again, these are not the notes that Mark sounds. These are not the things that Jesus says. There are two things that characterize disciples in Mark, and this is surprising. First of all, hospitality. Hospitality. The first is found in Mark 9, verses 36 and 37. Jesus talks about offering hospitality to the marginalized here. Just after disciples were discussing who was the greatest, we read this. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Children in the ancient world were those who had no social status, no social capital. They are the marginalized. Don't read this passage and think about modern notions of children. They're so innocent, cuddly, they're so trusting. That's Hallmark. This is Mark. In the eyes of the ancient... I didn't just think of that. I'll, just, I'll admit it. In ancient cultures, children were people who don't matter. And receiving someone in the ancient world means welcoming them, rolling out the red carpet which is what you do for someone really important, someone powerful, someone prestigious. Someone who, to spend time with them, their social capital is going to rub off on you. That's why you give them a warm welcome. Jesus says, offer hospitality. Roll out the red carpet to those that the world says don't matter. To those that the church says don't matter. And welcome them as dignitaries. And you absolutely have to notice how Jesus says this. Look closely at the text in Mark 9 and keep this in mind because this changes everything about our relationship to God, everything about our relationship to the kingdom. It has to shape how we think about ourselves and how we think about others. Jesus does not say, you should show my love to the marginalized. Jesus does not say, you have so much, 
you should welcome the marginalized. Jesus does not say, you be the hands and feet of Jesus to others. We might write it that way. That is not how Jesus puts it. Those ways of talking, which are so common among us, betray an arrogance about ourselves. We are not the ones who possess Jesus and get to dole him out. We are not the ones who Jesus sees as rich and we should share our possessions. We are the ones who are in need. And we are the ones God longs to bless with his presence. And it is when we welcome the marginalized. It is when we welcome those who have no social status. It is when we offer them hospitality that we welcome Jesus into our fellowship. It is when we do that that we welcome God into our fellowship. We do not have God. We do not have Jesus and dole him out. We are poor. And when we welcome those who are needy in, we get blessed with Jesus' presence. It totally reverses things. Which is why Jesus keeps saying in Mark, listen, look, because if you don't, you're going to talk gospel talk in American Christian language, and that's damning. The gospel logic, as it's revealed in Mark, is so countercultural to Christian culture. Far more redemptive as well. We need to change our language about how we talk about ministry. We need to not say, we need to show them the love of Jesus. But rather, what an awesome opportunity for us to enjoy Jesus' presence. Jesus does not motivate through guilt like we would. You have so much. Come on. Share with these poor people. We can adopt this way of talking. Despite all, what, all that we have, we desperately need Jesus. And all of these opportunities for ministry are opportunities for us to seize so that we get Jesus, so that we get God, and so that we can enjoy more of his life-giving power among us. Looking around our city, we have so many opportunities to get more of Jesus in here and more of God in here. Many marginalized in West Michigan. If you just let your imagination go, you can easily think of them. Just think of how church life in Grand Rapids is all organized around families, intact nuclear family units, marginalizing single people, divorced people, people that may not be in a family. All of the focus on the family in American Christianity has made us forget that the church is not made up of families. The church is a family, a welcoming place for people who are not connected. Think of refugees being resettled in West Michigan from war-torn parts of the world who have been traumatized and are living in fear and who might just need a little bit of help. figuring out how to live in a foreign place. <clears throat> Think about the massive Hispanic population in this region that is hunkered down 
and now living in fear because of our political climate regarding immigration. When I look at the big building boom in Grand Rapids as a middle-class white man, given my history and training and upbringing, I see growth, nicer restaurants, increased property values, sweet. But I'm learning to see the stresses on low-income families, the displacement of marginalized populations, the loss of a home for a single working mother. Grand Rapids is one of the top cities in the country for raising a family. If you're white. It's one of the most difficult cities in the countries. Sorry, it's one of the most difficult cities in the country for black people. What I love about this passage in Mark is Jesus cuts off the route that you and I would now take. We have it so good. We should feel guilty and we should help others. That's not how Jesus motivates. Jesus does not motivate from guilt. He offers us the promise that we can enjoy his presence by welcoming people who don't matter, who the world says don't matter. All the problems in Grand Rapids and in West Michigan, Crossroads is not the solution to. I'm not saying you bear all of that. This is just to say that there are so many opportunities for the church to enjoy Jesus. Jesus does not wag his finger at us and say, you have so much, you should share, you should give, you should offer hospitality. Again, he sees us as poor and needy and offers us a massive array of opportunities to enjoy his richness, the joy of his company, the sweetness of his presence. The second practice of disciples in Mark, very closely related to hospitality, is found in Mark 10, 42 to 45. Closely related, it's service. Hospitality and service are the two things that disciples do in the Gospel of Mark. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know how leadership works in the world. Those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Because the king of the kingdom is a servant who gives himself for the life of the church. Anyone who wants to be great will likewise be a servant. Hospitality and service. That's what distinguishes the cross-shaped community. That's what distinguishes rich soil. And these are the practices that are loaded with promise. Greatness in the kingdom, and we are offered the presence of Jesus. Hospitality and service. I've tried to represent the prophetic word that Jesus speaks to the church in the Gospel of Mark, but I want to just give you a couple notes of grace throughout Mark's narrative. The disciples abandon Jesus at the end of Mark, but Jesus never abandons them. In Mark 14, at the Last Supper, in a context in which Judas is plotting to betray him, and where Jesus predicts that Peter will disown him, 
Jesus speaks of eating the Passover with my disciples. They are about to abandon him. They are total failures, and he still claims them. In that same passage, Jesus breaks bread and says, this is my body, distributing it to each of them. And he takes a cup, and they all drink from it. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus gives himself to the church, filled with failures, filled with people who betray him, filled with people who deny him, filled with people who abandon him. In Mark, Jesus wants us to be quiet about him. But this is not a note of condemnation. It's a note of hope and grace. We are being invited to seek to know and understand what Jesus is all about. And as we're doing that, Mark has a couple of suggested lines for us to say. The man whose son is possessed by a demon says this, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus asks blind Bartimaeus what he wants, he says, my rabbi, I want to regain my sight. As people loved by God, as people claimed by Jesus, as a community targeted by Mark's searching prophetic word, and as a people learning to speak gospel, those are some good lines to start with. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in Christ and by your spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see and perceive what Jesus is all about. Open our ears, that we may hear and understand the cross-shaped character of the kingdom. And give us grace to let the cross do its work in this community and in our lives so that many in our city will experience relief and that we may know the presence, the joy, and the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.